Hi, I'm your host, Rowan Tonkin, and welcome to Being Planful, the show for FPNA leaders and planning experts. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Being Planful. My name's Rowan Tonkin. I'm the Chief Marketing Officer here at Planful, and I'm joined today by Marty Ostermiller. We've got this right. Marty Ostermiller, who's the CFO at Dental Intelligence. Marty, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Rowan. No problem. So we, we talked a little bit in prep. You're, uh, you're in your first 30, 30 days as a CFO at uh, Dental Intelligence. You've been a CFO a number of times before. Tell me, what does a CFO do in their first 30, 60, 90 days? Yeah, that's a good question. It's very relevant to how I'm thinking about every day I walk into the office right now. There, you know, there's, there's a lot to it. And I think when you join any business, there so many priorities hit your plate all at once. I think really trying to surface the most important priorities is the hardest part of the job. Mm-hmm. And I think with experience, um, you know, the more times I do this, the, the better I get at, at, at surfacing the, the biggest priorities first. It's it's certainly easy to get caught and head down rabbit holes or chase squirrels, as a former boss used to say. Yeah. Um, but I think, uh, you know, in, in, in my first, it really, I, I think I've been here about 40 days now. And the first couple of weeks, I made a big point of interviewing as many people in the business as I could, knowing that that, that window closes really quickly in terms of your, your ability just to go out with a carte blanche and ask all the questions you want to ask and have the completely naive, you know, I don't know anything viewpoint and I'm going to ask things from angles that will, will be interesting to, to kind of learn the, the full story around but that, I think that period is, is essential for really gaining access to what, the, what I should be focused on in, in, in my, my time here. And then I think over that, over that 90 day period, you really have to manage your stakeholder groups. And I think one of the big things is really understanding the group of people that work for you the people that you work for, you know, the management mm-hmm. team and the, yeah. the, the, the colleagues all around, and then the board. And uh, trying to, I think it's super important to set the right expectations with each of those groups um, early on, uh, because each, they've been wanting to hire this position for a while. It probably, the, the, the job search always takes longer than they expected. The whole just grew bigger while you were you know, being found uh, for the role, I think. And so the expectations are big. And I think being able to set the right expectations up front of what you can accomplish in the first, you know, 60 days, in the first three months, the first six months, in the first year, I think the, the better job I can do in, in, in setting myself up for success in that will have long-term uh, gain. <laughs> Yeah, and I think in order to do that, what what you said there resonated with me is is that window closes quickly, right? Because after the first sixty days, if if the CFO doesn't know, then that's a problem, right? So you're going to have to get rapidly all the insights from the business to effectively do the triage and assessment work to then even know what to play back and and also uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I imagine. The other half of the challenge is uh, all of the prioritization of what 
one stakeholder thinks is the most important thing for the CFO to be fixing or working on and someone else has a complete other perspective and getting that alignment would be a huge challenge too. I think so. And, you know, early on, it, it, it's really, um, it's helpful to kind of plan out your first 30 day or first 90 days, I would say, in a really deliberate manner in terms of getting to know the team, understanding the skill sets you have on the team, the skill sets I don't have on the team, mm -hmm. uh, trying to figure out whether the right people are on the team, whether the right people are in the right seats on the bus, as, they, as I often heard say, said. But that has to happen immediately and quickly because people are really nervous when you first get there about yeah. their own job security. And the faster I can get to a place where I can give them you know, the security that they need to know that they're, they're solid in the role and that you know, the investment is in them going forward, we're gonna make it, it work together. That's, I think that's an important early, early win. And then you know, trying to get everybody moving in the same direction, trying to be really clear on roles and responsibilities, on kind of the bigger expectation of where we're going. It's, it's, you know, it doesn't take too long to get a pretty good perspective on, on what the big company's big priorities that we need to focus on are, and then uh, being able to, to just give that bigger vision of, of and, and show people how they fit into that. So I think that's really important. And then the more motion I can get from those people that already know the business, if I can kind of get them down active paths of, of working toward a bigger vision that I have, then we can start to get wins in that first 30, 60, 90 days. And, and they can get some personal wins as well. And you know maybe looking at things from a, a bit of a different perspective or um, tackling a priority that hadn't been available to them before. Um, that's, you know, the, the wins for me in that first, the short period of time come from the team and really just being able to, to, to start to plant seeds in the right directions and getting everybody moving in their own directions, but moving forward. I really, I really love what you're talking about there to help me understand a little bit of the scope of, of your team and your remit. What, what functions do you look after there at dental intelligence and maybe, maybe tell our listeners a little bit about dental intelligence. Sure. So it, it, it's been different in, in almost every role I've had in terms of which teams report into me. And oftentimes it grows over time as yeah. uh, you know the company changes. Initially here at, at Dental Intelligence, I'll look after, of course, the finance and accounting teams. Uh, the HR will be reporting into me, which, which I love. I, I love the HR function and all that goes with it. Uh, also, the revenue operations team is going to report into me. And frankly, the, the, that wasn't the initial plan. And, and I think early, one of my early discoveries with uh, jumping in here is just the fact that there's a real need for central coordination of our life cycle of, of the customer from the time we, we first reach out to the customer all the way until the time we ultimately retire the customer. We have really three different teams managing the, this function that needs to be managed a little bit more centrally in a lot in a lot more coordinated sense. So uh, RevOps was something that uh, kind of has, has come into my purview since, since joining. And I will create a, a function around data management as well, um, mm -hmm. creating a data lake and being able to report from that lake and visualize, uh, create data visualizations from that data lake eventually as well. 
Awesome. Uh, so what's really interesting to me is uh, I'm, I'm the marketing guy here at Planful. It's why I, I get to host the podcast, but um, I look after revenue operations. And normally when, uh, when folks talk about revenue operations, and this is more from the B2B SaaS world, is uh, revenue operations is, is a combination of sales, marketing, and customer success mm-hmm. with some level of alignment and connection to finance. But it, it's very infrequent that the finance function leads it. Um, mm-hmm. Typically, it's it's either someone in sales ops uh, really takes ownership of that, or someone in marketing ops is, is generally really strong on the on the sales processes side, and and that's mm-hmm. inherited, depending on the business, of course. So, how did it come about for uh, for you to to have finance leading that? And and secondly, what does that mean for you and the way that you think about structuring the team? knowing your team are going to be hopefully listening to this, you may not want to give everything away, but uh, just be interested in your perspectives there. Yeah, of course. I, I think really it can report in a lot of different places and it depends on the structure of the company. Um, one of the reasons I like to see it in finance is because finance is kind of the Switzerland of the business. We're neutral. We're, we don't have skin in the game on, on how Things are measured from a marketing perspective or a sales perspective or customer success. Really, we want to see all of those functions succeed equally and, and see a good flow between all of those functions. And so in the case of dental intelligence, it makes sense at this stage in our life cycle to have a neutral party in the middle of the operation and making sure the left hand's talking to the right hand. And right now that's missing. Right now it's siloed for the most part. Um, marketing has their own people, revenue has their, or, or sales has their own people and customer success has their own people. And it's causing, it's creating a lot of discrepancy in the data. You know, I was looking at a, at a board deck that, that, uh, that the the team presented to the board prior to my arrival. And I just started taking a report from the, the sales team and trying to reconcile that to a, sale, a report from the marketing team. And ultimately the numbers weren't tying and it, it, it really t- took diving down all the way to the bottom of the data to figure out where the problems were. And, you know, that's that's a finance chief's nightmare is to, to have things not be able to, not having the data talking to each other and use in, in, in a productive way. And, and, so, and obviously finance can then be to your point, the Switzerland to go and create that alignment and, uh, mm-hmm. and the data lake idea, the data infrastructure then becomes the, the neutral ground, so to speak, where mm-hmm. uh, everything is matched and married and uh, all the ETL work and, uh, you know, what is this, what is, what do we define as this measure is defined as that measure and, you know, Mm -hmm. not one from one marketing system and not another interpretation from the sales system and and so forth. Is that, is that the end goal there? You, you captured it perfectly. I, I, that's, that's really what that, that's added, that's created a lot of success in the past of, of just mm-hmm. creating the data source that everybody can believe and trust. You know the calculations work. You know that you know if you're you're calculating customer acquisition cost or, or um, different net retention or, or different metrics for the business. I can trust that they those are are validated uh, calculations, and somebody using the data can trust that they're validated. Uh, calculations mm-hmm. and they don't have to go and validate them in, in five different areas of the business 
or worse yet, be called out in a meeting or in a board meeting that their numbers don't make any sense. So I, you, you, you captured it perfectly in, in, in just saying that, you know, ultimately we're just trying to create the, the, the central area from which we all are able to tell the same story in a consistent and useful way. And, and how does that, um, so when, when people think of traditional finance and, and what you're, you're talking about is to me a much more modern finance organization and much more modern infrastructure for a finance organization to have under its purview. When you think about traditional versus what we're just talking about, what are the different skill sets required? Because in my mind, you're going to need much more um, technical skills than what would exist in a traditional finance and accounting focused organization. And then secondly, when you add HR on top of that, which is also becoming more and more data centric too, mm -hmm. um, does that, has that, have you seen that evolved over time in your journey in finance and accounting? It definitely has. And I think the, the key for me in, in running highly technical areas like salesforce.com management or gainsight management or some of the, the different specialty products that you're able to implement to run a better business, I think the, the biggest thing for me is really just to hire people that really know what they're doing and are the experts. I just, you know, in my in the 40 days that I've been here, I've hired a, a, a controller, um, a financial controller. I've hired a head of revenue operations. Mm -hmm. And the, the person who's coming in from revenue or to run a revenue operations team is amazing. He knows revenue operations like the back of his hand. He knows it way, way better than I will ever know it. <laughs> and that's, you know, that that's the key to success in any role is hire people smart, smarter than you are and let those people run. So I, I fully want to empower, you know, the people working for me to, to really run. And, you know, in this case, speaking specifically about revenue operations, I don't have to be the expert, but Sean does have to be the expert. And really, I can I can, you know, help him maximize his abilities and his contacts within the business, his ability to interact with the exec team or the board or get the resources that he needs to be successful. But ultimately I won't be successful unless I, I, I put the right team up, you know, in place from the top down to, to really manage that function. And, and so I, 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 you know, my curiosity scales are off the charts here, right? I've got lost so many questions on this because when you think of a traditional finance and accounting team, you'll often have the partnership side of there might be an FP&A lead for the sales and marketing organization, an FP&A lead for the customer success organization, FP&A lead for HR and uh, different people doing different parts of those. And depending on how big you are, you might have one dedicated person to each department. Mm -hmm. Now that you have revenue operations too, you're typically in, in the revenue operations world, strategy and analytics is a key component of that. How does that um, start to manifest itself in the organizational structure that you may be thinking about? Because you might have more efficiencies than a lot of other finance and accounting teams who are happening to work with a revenue operations team. Mm -hmm. it, it's a great question. And I think, you know, I really think of the CFO role as you, you've, you've got to be creating actionable, actionable value for the company. And to be really close to the, 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 the top layer of the data, you know, basically from, from the moment that the, 
marketing team contact, you know, sends sends a an email out to an unknown contact and they become mm -hmm. a lead in the system, really being able to be part of the definition of all the stages of the uh, sales cycle from the marketing cycle to the sales cycle to the customer cycle is really a huge advantage, I, I think, in, in the role that I'm, I'm playing as CFO because you can then get so much more strategic with that data. And uh, I think, you know, thinking about the business from a numbers oriented perspective, being able to define how the, you know, how the data comes into the system really gives you so much power and leverage with that data to be able to help those areas of the business really maximize their, their roles. And, um, so many folks, uh, and I'm not one of them, uh, I'm a, a big supporter of finance. Many folks have encountered finance teams that are more scorekeeping than advisory, if you will. Mm -hmm. And so uh, seeing all that span of responsibility in, in the finance function might scare some folks, right? So mm -hmm. I don't know what it's like at Dental Intelligence, so I'm not going to speak for that organization. But having, mm -hmm. uh, having seen some of that before, it, it would be... Um, a challenge sometimes for someone like yourself to come into the business and take uh, that much, if some, some people might say control, but take on that much responsibility to honor the business in effect and, and serve the business in that way. Um, sounds like from the top of this, this conversation, going and finding out all that information is a key part of your strategy to go and build that trust. Mm -hmm. Is that part of your overall methodology, knowing that you have to go and do all of that? For sure. And, you know, I think there, there might be the old school model of finance, which is a lot of scorekeeping, a lot of vanity reporting, a lot of just, you know, this, this goes into the reporting metrics that we report every month. But for me, I want to get all that reporting out of the way. I want to automate it. I want it to happen on its own. Because to a certain extent, a lot of reporting just needs to happen to inform the right stakeholders um, about how the business is doing. But what I really get excited about focusing my team on is actionable, make the business better reporting. Mm -hmm. And it, 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 it really has to happen really far upstream of the end product of the vanity reporting. If you want to make the business better, you've really got to figure out what the drivers are. Um, to making that business better. And in, the only way to do that is to really understand all the stages of, of the business. And I think it's, it's for a CFO to be very involved in the revenue generating side of the business, I think is absolutely essential because without it, you're not going to succeed as a business. And I think bringing a numbers orientation to the way that decisions are made across the business has, has a lot of really positive impact. And what have you seen in, in your career, obviously your early days in, in uh, dental intelligence, but at prior companies, how have you used that level of um, detail, solving the table stakes, you know, weekly, monthly, you know, um, quarterly board reporting, solving those table stakes, but how have you used that to fuel the growth of the business? Because I, I imagine that's effectively what you're trying to do is uh, find those go-to-market organizations, partner with them, help them be better. And often that leads to conversations around, well, how do we fuel that growth? How do we optimize that growth? What, what kind of things have you seen that have worked for, for organizations? 
I think it, it, it really depends on, on the organization and the challenges that they're facing um, that day. I, I was really lucky at a past business called HireView, where I actually worked with one of your colleagues. Um, the, at that business, I, I worked for a, a man named Kevin Parker, who was the, the former CFO of PeopleSoft. And he was the CEO of Dell Tech and Polycom and a few other companies along the way. And so he had that full kind of CFO to CEO evolution in his mind of, of how how to evolve. And you know, just every day I learned something from 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 Kevin that, that I was there at Hireview. And I, I think one of the his favorite words that he he drilled into my head during my time there was disaggregation. And it was always taking, you know, oftentimes a, a number will 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 show you that there's a problem. But it, that's that's where the conversation starts, and then really getting to the root analysis of why there's a problem there, is the fun part. And for him, and what I learned from that experience was really disaggregating that number. Okay, look at that number, and then break it down into the components that are driving it, and then find within those components what where the problem is, and go all the way down to the lowest level possible until you get to the place where you see where the problem is. If you're looking at net retention or gross retention or um, lead generation, whatever whatever it is, there you getting to the root cause analysis is so key um, to that to that whole process. And, and in your perspective, is that one of the advantages of having revenue operations is that you can get down, you, you can go from kind of being the eagle scanning the top and mm -hmm. just dive into the detail as fast as mm -hmm. possible because you have the team, you have the capabilities, you have effectively the, the architecture to go and do that. Yeah, and I'm really picking up on the word you used, architecture, because yeah. that is the key to being able to drill down is you've got to have the systems and, and processes and architecture in place to be able to go deep. My, you know, my, my, I really like to kind of layer reporting. You know, you have mm -hmm. your board layer, board level reporting, which is at a pretty summary level. But inevitably, you're going to be asked hard questions off of that. And to be able to just to, to double click on each of those questions and go a little bit deeper into your systems or your analysis and get all the way down to the answer. But to do that, it takes some work and it takes some, some forethought and, and planning around a real architecture to the way that your data is managed, the way your, um, your systems connect to each other, the way the data flows all the way through that, that the systems and processes and ultimately into a place where you can report in an intelligent way. To help me understand uh, and, and probably help our listeners understand uh, and, and hopefully I can avoid the uh, answer of it depends because um, <laughs> I think that this is always going to be the, the it depends. What have you seen as timelines for getting to that kind of nirvana that you see? Like uh, you talked about high of you and now you're looking at dental intelligence to go from just having you know, maybe reporting being done in spreadsheets manually, those sorts of things to then get to that, you know, multi-tiered architecture that we just talked about. What does the time horizon look like for, for something like that? And, and how long do you perceive that you have uh, with the board and with your stakeholders at, at Dental Intelligence? There are a lot of factors that influence that. I'm, yeah. I'm going to try not to say it depends. <laughs> <laughs> the, it depends on the size of the company. It depends on where the problems are. It depends on what exists when you get there. Yeah. And 
ultimately that combination creates all the noise that that you've got to then sort through and, and figure out how to get through. But I think it takes a while and it it it, it definitely takes a, a vision of where you're heading. But you've got to benefit all the way along. And just like I kind of think of my first 100-day plan, I have to have some big wins in the first 100 days. That's when the board's getting comfortable with me in this role. That's when my peers are, you know, I'm earning the respect of, of you know, does it make sense to have re revenue operations in, in my organization? Is he up to that task? Is he going to meet Am I going to meet the needs of marketing or sales or customers' success? And so you have to prove yourself pretty quickly in the role. And so I can't just go for nirvana and take two years to get there or a year to get there, or even six yeah. months to get there. I have to have a journey there. And along that journey, I have to be able to benefit from the wins along the way to, to, um, to ultimately show value as, as you grow. And then, you know, keep fit, keep enhancing it, keep getting better as you go, but it's never going to be perfect. And it's always going to be a, an ongoing um, vision of where, where you're heading. But if you kind of look toward a North Star of where you want to go all along the way, you can benefit. And and so do you find that that's your, one of your chief responsibilities is uh, continuously communicating that vision, communicating the success and communicating the challenges to all of those stakeholders involved? Sorry, I, I missed just a little bit of that, the internet. No, no problem. So I, I said, do you, do you perceive that as kind of one of your key responsibilities is to communicate consistently that vision, recalibrate on that vision and, and recalibrate on the execution of that vision at each of those you know, important milestones along the way? Or do you try and uh, delegate that to Sean, your head of revenue operations? How do you perceive kind of your role amongst that transformation? You know, I think if I'm doing a good job as a leader, then everybody that I'm leading is taking on that message as well and, and leading the, the, the teams that work for them. And not only the teams I'm leading directly, but really the impact or the, that conversation at the executive team level, even at the board conversation level, um, I think all, you know, all change comes with a lot of communication. Yeah. And, continued even a lot of repeti repetition of that same communication, which sometimes feels a little old coming out of your, your, your mouth, but at the same time, you know that it, or I, just from experience, it, 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 to, to make big change, changes in an organization, you've got you've to keep pushing and pushing and pushing. I, I'm in marketing. Repetition is the key to success yeah. <laughs> uh, because if you don't repeat the same message, people will go in one ear and out the other on a frequent basis. <laughs> For sure. So, Marty, I know uh, we, we talked uh, prior to this. You, you've had an interesting few years of travel. You spent the last two years working in Paris. Uh, talk to our listeners a little bit about uh, what that journey was and, and how you found uh, the culture and the change of that. It was fantastic. Yeah, you know, I think having that, that, if that opportunity, if you come across that opportunity in your career, jump at it. Um, just being able to, to live and work in a different culture is amazing. And especially in Paris, of all, of all places that yeah. I, I, I got to do this in, it was, it was an amazing experience just learning how, you know, there are so many similarities. You run a SaaS business in the US, 
the metrics are the same in France. You rent, you know, but you have an employee base that is very different. And the way that you interact with that, those teams is different. The, but same, same, different. It, yeah. I, I could say, you know, we're all, the, the startup community in, in France is thriving right now. It, it's really exciting to see what the, the president of, of France has done in terms of really lighting a fire under a whole ecosystem system of businesses there. And I think, you know, coming at the French market from an American CFO perspective, an American CFO that had been in, in software as a service, it felt like I had a skill set that was, you know, up, somewhat unique in, in, in that environment. Paris is a big, you know, there were a lot of seed stage businesses, a lot of Series A, not very many Series B, Series C, and beyond. And so the it felt like, you know, coming from the U.S., coming from, you know, a lot of different software as a service companies here in the U.S., it felt like I had something to offer there that that was unique, and it was it was nice to be in that in that role um, and be able to draw from experiences here and then translate that across cultures and and get that message across in France. But overall, it was it was a pretty amazing experience. And lots of, lots of learning. <laughs> that that's amazing. I, uh, I I did you happen to look after HR in your time over there, or did they leave that one to the to the French folks, given all the different employment law and things like that? Yeah. So HR is its own monster in France. It's yeah. it's a it's almost a different function. Um, it it's got all the traditional functions that you have in the U.S., but you also have a lot of very very specific regulations specific to France and um, even the EU for that that matter. But there's there's actually even a lot of liability related to HR. You know, they'll lock you up in France if you if you get it wrong. <laughs> in that role and so i you know i i i i, I had the, the great privilege of, of working with a, a colleague um something uh who she she's now the uh runs hr for air talk in france uh, but she was the best hr person i've ever worked with and you know not only managing within the complex environment in france we had offices all over the world we had you know employee challenges all over the world and just just watching someone who really knows their stuff and to be able to do that in a in an environment that's a little bit more constrained than the us in terms of how you interact with the employee base um I, I learned. I, I was very happy not to have the. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure I've, I've spent some time myself in in France. I, I lived in London for ten years and was consistently traveling to uh, French offices. And I just remember how different uh, employment law was, the way that uh, people thought about work and thought about the way that uh, you know work and and you know company and employee relationship should be and. Mm -hmm. uh, I guess, um, as a CFO, how did that make you think about the organization differently? Obviously, uh, you were brought over there because you have all this SaaS and uh, US experience, but some of it potentially could have been completely non-relevant because you're in such a different market, such a different perspective, such a different way of right. going about things. I'd say it softened me up. You know, <laughs> not to say I'm, I'm, I, I have a different work day or a different, um, 
you know, standard of, of how I contribute to the business, but I, I learned a lot from the French. Mm -hmm. the, you know, I think the, the separation between work and your personal life is, I would say, much more distinct there than it is here. And they even have laws to protect it. They have, you know, there's a lot of not being able to contact people on their cell phones and, and you know, expect that people check their email outside of normal business hours. They're, you know, you can get in trouble for that. And so it, it forces you, although it happens and you do have certain communications outside, you know, probably in, in opposition to those laws at times, yeah. if you respect it to a large degree, people don't mind if you you know, kind of have to go around it sometimes to work on hard problems at hard times. And I, I think that people were very reasonable in that, in that regard. But I, I did appreciate that. And I did appreciate that. I think one thing that the French really have going for them is they take quite a bit of vacation. They take, you know, the evenings and the weekends are often not spent thinking a lot about work. And I find the the quality of worker there is among the best colleagues I've ever had. They work hard. And, and when they're working, you, you have a fully engaged employee that is, you know, bringing a fresh mind to work. And there was so much to learn from that. You know, the, basically, the standard vacation is about five weeks. And then you add to that, France has a really beautiful thing called the 35-hour work week. And it doesn't work out in a startup that you work 35 hours. And so they essentially pay you for those additional hours that you're, you're working. And that payment comes, you can either as an employer give that back in, in terms of paying the people more, or you can give it back in terms of essentially a couple more weeks of vacation. So as an American, if you can imagine, well, you're not American, but you've been working for American com companies. But if you can imagine seven weeks of holiday a year, managing a team that has that much vacation time can be a little bit tricky. And so there are actual real advantages of it because you can't have single points of failure. If some guy is off for the month of August in France, you've got to have other backups to any individual on your team, I'd say. And it's not to say you have to have two people for every role, but you definitely have to have a, a spread the knowledge beyond just single points of failure. Um, yeah, the, uh, the cross training becomes so important at that point, especially in a finance organization. Like what happens when your controller takes the whole of August off? Yeah, you know, it's actually beautiful in France. You just don't close the books in September. You close them in October or, <laughs> or August and September. But, uh, that's amazing. So what are you doing this August? You're obviously going to be on vacation for the whole month, are we? Yeah, probably not. <laughs> in here. So it's going to be yeah. a big change this year. But, um, you know, I'm, I, I, I love working in the U.S. and being part of an American company. And there's so much to say for the American culture of, of just entrepreneurship and hard work. And um, they're, you know, just the, the, the vibe here at yeah, Dental Intelligence and um, so many of the places I've worked in the US, it's a, we're, we're pretty lucky. And, you know, it's not to say I didn't have that in France. It was completely different and better in certain ways and worse in others. But I, I, I can say after a couple of years in France that I'm, I'm really thrilled to be back.
Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I, I spent 10 years in London, as I said earlier, and uh, just being in a completely different work culture, the way people go about things uh, really opens your eyes to other ways of working. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, I used to enjoy, we didn't quite have the French all of August off, but you definitely mm -hmm. had a nice summer break, uh, compulsory kind of vacation. That's one thing that I was going to ask you about your, your time there in France was, um, it's also expected that if you have seven weeks vacation, you're taking them, right? Uh, you know, yeah. in, in the American system, a, a lot of companies have unlimited PTO, um, mm -hmm. but the expectation is no one's taking unlimited PTO. <laughs> yeah, that's more of a CFO's tool not to accrue for. <laughs> <laughs> Don't tell everyone. Yeah. Thankfully, it's only other finance folks listening to this podcast. But, uh, yeah. you know, if you're in other parts of the business listening to this episode, uh, Marty just let you in on a little secret there yeah. about unlimited PTO. <laughs> it's just a little bit less than your boss takes, and that's kind of a downward <laughs> spiral. spiral. <laughs> it, did you learn, uh, so uh, the, the company that you were with there in, in France, did you have to go through fundraising or anything like that during the period? And, and how different was that being in a, uh, in a kind of French-based uh, world that may have mm -hmm. completely different rules, regulations than we have here in the mm -hmm. US? So I, I, I did go through two fundraising cycles while I was there, and it, I, I would say it's very much the same as it is in the U.S. The, mm -hmm. the, what's different are the, the, the kind of the groupings of, of stakeholders or of, of like the venture capital firms that you reach out to are the first Europeans and then kind of the Americans. And I think the American, as I noticed during my time in France are getting much more excited about the opportunity to invest in France, Germany, the UK and other places, because I think the US right now, the valuations are so ridiculously high. I think there's still value to be, to be found in, in Europe at, a, at reasonable prices. And so I think that's what has brought a lot of the US firms over to, to Europe for investment. And also just they're interesting markets. France has a lot going on. The UK has a lot going on. Germany, the whole ecosystem there is growing. So there is that US interest. But for me, I had to build a, a whole new contact base of European investors. That was probably the hardest um, thing uh, to do. And in both cases, I was lucky to work with great investment banks that really opened up a lot of contacts that, that um, made it much easier from that perspective. And from a, um, from a VC perspective, uh, how um, attuned were they with the operating, uh, like the, the different operating methodologies in, in Europe from your perspective? You know, it's interesting. I've been in software as a service for long enough that it's been a whole evolution for VCs in general, just to get used to the SaaS model. And, you know, I, I remember pitching Byron Dieter early on in the, in, in, in the life cycle. I think I was at Ballyhoo at that time. And, you know, he, he was the first guy to really get, I don't know if you, you know Byron Dieter, but he, he's the guy who basically defined um, the, the SaaS metrics that we all use mm -hmm. today, whether it's net retention or CAC payback period or any of those. And 
you know, he was the, I, I remember what a breath of fresh air it was to, to talk to um, his firm and to talk to him because he really understood our business. But not all of the conversations at that time were like that. Not everybody understood the SaaS model. And, you know, especially, especially banks and going after financing and, and traditional financing, they were looking yeah. for EBITDA positive. And so many of the businesses I've worked for have been EBITDA negative and growing super fast. And that has a, a place. But so I, I, I've kind of seen that evolution in the US, but in, in, in France and Europe, they were just a little bit behind on that and kind of still catching up on, on that understanding. And I, I, I would say my general observation was they were more conservative than the investors here. Um, more, it seemed like the hardest investors to work with were the ones that were really caught up on, on trying to understand every metric and number in the business. The mm. ones that were like working with the Sequoias and the and, and TCVs and uh, the ones that could look at it from a much more high level standpoint, understand where the market's going, understand how the team could contribute to the success of the company. We were fortunate to to have Index as an investor in in um, the business and and they you know they are that kind of high level view and they have a really strong arm in Europe and they have a strong arm in the US as well. Um, yeah, amazing. Not everybody well, has that perspective. To... Yeah, Marty, this has been a fantastic conversation. As I'm uh, sitting here, I'm seeing the traffic behind you just get uh, <laughs> heavier and heavier. So yeah. uh, is there anything you'd like to add to our listeners uh, who tend to be a lot of, you know, directors of FPNA? Anything that you would, uh, from a CFO's perspective, want to say to them in order to help help them along their career journeys? Sure. I think, you know, director of FPNA or finance director, all of those roles are. It's it's really where you're going to make your mark in your career, and it's where you're going to create that really steep curve of upward trajectory. And I think the, you know, when I think back to that that period. Um, for me, which came, you know, working for a company called Right Now Technologies, which uh, was public, eventually sold to Oracle, but it was based in Bozeman, Montana. And, you know, we were doing something really obscure at the time, building an amazing business out of a tiny town in Montana. Yeah, wow. um, but when I think about where I really cut my teeth and, and where I made the most growth in my career, it was it was during that phase. And I have to say, I really put in the time in, in that phase of my career, um, you know, there, there was just always too much to do in the, in the hours allotted to me during the day to do it. And I think to really stand out, you've got to put in a, a, a lot of extra effort. You've got to, you got to do your job and then you got to do the job you want to do beyond that. And that's, I think, where you're going to really grow and you, where you're going to also impress the the people that are, you know, benefiting from the analysis, from the, um, you know, the strategic work that you're able to contribute to. But I think that helped me a lot. The other thing that helped me a lot at that stage of my career was getting super deep into the systems. You know, whatever system it was that I touched, I wanted to just learn it down to the, the, the mechanics of how it worked. And that served me really well. Um, because I could, you know, just even Excel, you know, that tool that we all use every single day, be the best user of Excel in your business. And there, there are now so many resources on the web to uh, learn what you don't know. And whenever you don't know the answer, you can Google it and figure it out. But I think 
you know, be the best in the company using that tool, whether it's Excel, whether it's Gainsight, whether it's Planful, whether, it, you know, whatever, whatever system you're using, get to know it well and be an expert. And because of that, people will look to you when they're trying to solve problems. And for me, it got, it, it gave me access at that early stage in my career to a lot of executive level conversations because I was the only guy who could, who could help with the problem. Do that thing, yeah. And, um, and that that became a real advantage. And it sounds like to, to, from my perspective, it sounds like it's still an advantage for you now that you are at that level, you understand how those systems work. So therefore you're able to uh, understand how finance can help take advantage of them to uh, be a better partner to the rest of the business. So uh, love that advice. So thank you. Yeah. And it's actually interesting as you as you kind of excel in your career and you get you get to the level of leading the whole team, you become a lot more distant from those uh, systems and you have to figure out how to lead from afar. And, you know, you're almost more of an auditor to some extent. You're just asking hard questions and poking deep every now and then. And um, but you don't get the advantage of, of really getting to know all the systems and data to the level um, you do earlier in your career. Yeah, <laughs> I can attest to that. There's a few systems in our in our house that I just don't know at the level that I I used to or wish that I could, and uh, yeah. the the time value isn't there for me to go and spend that time either. So uh, yeah. I know I know how you feel. Sometimes I feel like the chief, uh, you know, editing officer of the marketing team because I just get to pick on copywriting. Sometimes it's easier <laughs> in a Google Doc, right? Yeah. <laughs> Well, Marty, thank you so much for joining us on the Being Planful podcast. Uh, we really uh, loved having you and, uh, and have a great uh, rest of your day. And thanks so much. Sounds great. Thanks, Ryan. Cheers. Take care. Make sure you hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast so you don't miss an episode. Thanks for stopping by.